build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at patagonia.com. Rating systems. Outdoor minded people love rating systems. I don't know why, but I do know that kayakers have classes, skiers resort to blue squares and black diamonds to describe runs. Climbers have to be the most OCD of us all. Basically, we've got a system that begins with grades, numbers, decimals, then finally a letter grade, which may or may not contain a safety rating. And that's just the American system, and that only covers rock climbing, not bouldering or aid climbing. Right. We, the outdoor community, we've now tried to rate the unrateable. A child's smile after a butterfly lands on an outstretched hand. We can rate that. The joy a mountaineer feels atop a summit. Let me go ahead and plug that into the fun calculator. We've gone and done it. We've rated fun. Fun divided by three. It's this concept I've heard about for years. First from my friend Shane, who got it from his friend, and then from my other friend Kelly. Anyway, this concept gets passed around campfires, and it's only a matter of time before someone publishes the definitive guide. Basically, it turns out that there are only three types of fun. First, there is type 1 fun. This is fun fun. This is backcountry skiing on a powder day. It's perfect hand jams in September in the desert. Four foot glassy waves at Rincon. Type 1 fun sounds like fun during the planning stages. It's going to be fun in the moment, and it provides at least a half an hour of engaging conversation over a pint of beer. Sweet. We all like type 1 fun. Type 2. Okay, so type 2 fun sounds like it's going to be fun. But during the process, there will be a moment when you curse the person who got you into it. That could be your partner, but more likely it's you. Type 2 fun involves unexpected blizzards, pieces of gear left in the car, pre-dawn starts, midnight finishes, and at least one string of expletives that would make your grandmother cry. It's pretty fun to talk about after the fact. You'll be able to retell it at least a dozen times before your significant other muzzles you. Type 2 fun makes a pretty good story. Type 3. Type 3 is the epic, the business, the dada. It's a guaranteed sufferfest. If you think you can plan your way out of this one, you are delusional. If you want to succeed, you're going to have to leave a little bit of yourself behind. This is post-holing at 25,000 feet and 4 feet of new snow. This is carrying a kayak 3 miles through Devil's Club while being stalked by a cougar. You'll call out for your mommy, but your mommy cannot help you. This is trample the weak and hurdle the dead, wild animal kind of And because of this, Type 3 fun is by far and away the most fun to talk about afterwards. So today, we're going to talk about this Type 3 kind of fun. This is the epic. This is collarbone-breaking, giardia-getting, exhaustion-induced, hallucinating carnage. If it sounds terrible, that's because it probably is. 
I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. So we threw out a definition for type 3 fun. Let's go over it quickly. It doesn't sound like it's going to be fun, it sucks while you're doing it, and it's by far and away the most fun to talk about afterwards. So to explore this, we're going to have to ask a couple different questions. First off, what does it look like? And then, well, why do some of us seem particularly inclined or predisposed to type 3 fun? And then finally, what could possibly motivate any of us to embark on this kind of sadistic mission? Okay, so first, let's take a look at the anatomy of type 3 fun. What does it actually look like? There is no better place to turn for an answer to this question than expedition adventure racing. This is a sport designed to put participants in stressful, mentally demanding situations where they are pressured to succeed in competition, all while pushing themselves to the edges of human endurance. Type 1 fun doesn't exist in adventure racing. There is no such thing as having a mellow and relaxing day of navigating impenetrable underbrush. There's a, there's a great saying in adventure racing that is, yeah, it never always gets worse. It never always gets worse. It, it gets worse a lot. Often, day after day, it continuously gets worse, and bad things pile on each other, but it never always gets worse. This is Jared Hanley, father, husband, investment baker, and adventure racer. He's been adventure racing for almost a decade now, and it's a particular love for expedition adventure racing. These, these are races that are designed to not just challenge a team of four racers, but destroy them. Teams, typically made up of three men and one woman, must stay within 100 meters of each other at all time. It's a race, but there's not a real set course. There's a series of checkpoints that you have to reach in order. And um, you navigate however you see fit between those points. So, you know, you can go over a mountain or you can go around it. The Primal Quest Badlands, Jared's most recent race, entailed running 50 miles, then hopping on a mountain bike for 110 miles, before navigating a massive cave system, then trekking another 100 miles. The top teams at Primal Quest Badlands finish up in about 10 days. They cover 660 miles. While running, bikes, and navigation are staples of every adventure race, each event has its own flavor. There's often other stuff thrown in. There's, there's rope work, which is you know fending, uh, rappelling, or traversing um, ropes. There's you know can be swimming, um, rollerblading. This, this this race had a, a caving section, um, and then one Wait, of the other. Did you just say rollerblading? That they rollerblade in adventure racing? They're, well, this one it hasn't been around for years, but uh, you know, really any non-motorized transportation. It may sound a bit contrived to some of us who are used to adventure without rule books, but what is very, very real, and maybe it's the real draw of the sport, is the suffering. It's an all-you-can-stomach buffet of pain, and the people who adventure race pay money to do this. You pay a lot of money. I mean, these races are just crazy expensive. Primal Quest is like twelve, thirteen grand per team um, member. Yeah. That's why a lot of the teams are, are sponsored professional teams because it's just so expensive. And yeah, there is guaranteed suffering. I mean, you know going in, there's you're going to hurt. You are absolutely going to hurt. There's no, I mean, it's not like you know you could just skimp by and get lucky and you know float o- 
over the 100,000 feet of elevation climbing. You pass out on the side of the trail somewhere and just drool on yourself for an hour or so and then get back up and, and go again. You know, all in all, you're not out there just giggling and having a great time like you're tossing a frisbee around or anything. It's, it's a lot of constant work and suffering. You'll hear us scream and shout till they play. Out of all of Jared's races, the Badlands Primal Quest was a dark one. It started early during a biking leg. My seat had slipped down just inch by inch by inch, and I I had noticed it, but by the you know the end of that leg, I caused some real damage to to one of my knees because of my uh, basically my bike fit was off. The pain was excruciating, and yet Jared did what all adventure racers do: he kept going. But things only got worse. And we um, eventually reached this area of South Dakota called the Badlands, which is um, pretty rugged and uh, remote, very, you know, very dry. And I think even the water that is there, you can't treat and drink because of it's all these uh, sulfurs and other nasty things in it. And um, right on our way into the Badlands, I, I had um, contracted some kind of um, stomach problem, which we ultimately found out was Giardia that I had contracted about maybe a week earlier in the race. This race, it lasted so long that Jared had time to contract Giardia. He then had enough time for it to develop inside of his gut and for it to go into full bloom. The Badlands, 100 degree heat and a powerful intestinal bug, it's not a pretty picture. And I'll let you paint it. So physically, I became quite raw. Um, Just being super dehydrated, I had zero energy. My knee was just burning out of control. And, um, and, and then also just emotionally, you get kind of frustrated in that it's a team aspect. And I knew that my ailments were slowing down the team and forcing us to be exposed in this very inhospitable place for, for quite some time. I probably spent, you know, several hours just kind of staring at my feet, shuffling, you know, feeling bad for myself and and questioning why on earth I was out there, you know, doing this to myself. The cool thing about it and, and you know, how it turned out and how I found that it almost always turns out is, is that you come back. We eventually made it to, to some, some water. I was able to hydrate and, you know, over the course of the following night when it was much cooler, I was able to keep down a lot of liquids and eat more and, um, and I came back. So I had to ask, is it, is it fun for you? In, in a sick way, it can be fun. I mean, because it becomes so absurd over over time, what you're doing and why you're doing it. I mean, it, it, you just have to face your insanity at some point and realize that, <laughs> you know, I, I have to enjoy myself here because it's, cause this is just nuts. There's no, I mean, why would someone put themselves through this over and over again? Yeah, I mean, what you get out of it is, is not a fun experience, I mean, but it's incredibly satisfying and rewarding and very raw, raw emotions and things that you just can't get in your daily life at all. Um, That's what you take away from it. So what makes Jared, Jared? Why do some people seem inclined towards type 3 fun? You know these types. They're the type of people who, when they call with weekend plans in the mountains, you, well, you either don't return their phone calls or you suddenly find a family obligation or have to book a trip to the dentist on Sunday. Some people just seem to like suffering. 
Sports medicine types, psychologists, and physiologists have been picking away at this phenomenon for decades. They've been looking at it in sports like swimming, cycling, long-distance running, the hopes of learning how to groom winners. Why are some people really good at it? Is it mental? Is it genetic? Or is it physiological? Did no one hug these people as children? So type 3 fun. It involves discomfort. Sometimes it's difficult to describe this discomfort as pain, but sometimes not. So let's start with pain. Scientifically speaking, there are three types of pain. Curious, considering that there are also three types of fun. Anyway, the science types pretty much agree that there is physical pain, that is to say injury-related pain, broken legs, torn ACLs, etc. Then there is mental pain. And finally, there is something they call exertion pain. This type of pain is the result of intense, prolonged exertion, dehydration, elevated heart rate, and buildup of lactic acid. And while it has its roots in the physical, scientists believe that exertion pain is the product of the mind, possibly part of a warning system left over from when humans had run long distances for hunting. We hurt because it's our mind's way of letting us know we are burning too much energy. Or at least that's how the theory goes. It's like an alarm bell. This is what they meant when they said, no pain, no gain. And it turns out that some of us are better at dealing with this pain than others. In 1966, two scientists, Ryan and Kochevich, began to look at pain tolerance in young men and found something pretty interesting. Athletes who played contact sports had higher pain thresholds than athletes who engaged in non-contact sports. A year later, Ryan came back with another cohort, Howard, and came up with another test, this one even more sadistic. They took a plastic cleat tipped with an aluminum stud, kind of like a screw you'd find on a pair of soccer spikes, and they placed it on the bony section, just above their subject's ankle, and then they wrapped it in a blood pressure cuff, like the one that the doctor uses to take your blood pressure. Then they started pumping it up. This is what they found. If you were a football player or a wrestler, it took you a lot longer to cry mercy than a tennis player or a golfer. <laughs> and if you were a poindexter and didn't play any sports at all, your pain tolerance was nothing compared to the golfer. And basically it was half of what a football player's pain tolerance was. Could it be that if an athlete experienced physical pain on a regular basis, they felt pain less? That was part of what Ryan surmised. It wasn't conclusive, but at the very least, they had pinpointed an interesting correlation, one worth examining. The studies continued. In the 1980s, sports scientists noticed something else. At the highest level of endurance sports, Olympic caliber stuff, an athlete's physiological traits stopped mattering. Genetically speaking, at this point, all the athletes competing, they were already the cream of the cream. If they made it that far, they were uncommonly built for their sport. They had access to superior training, conditioning, equipment, and in some cases, maybe even superior drugs. Physiologically speaking, it was hard to discern winners from losers. So something else separated these athletes. Something announcers and fans recognize as spirit, heart, and courage. But anyone who epics on a regular basis knows as pain tolerance.
In 2007, Jeffrey Kress and Tracy Stadier published a paper in the Journal of Sports Behavior. For their study, the researchers interviewed top flight cyclists, all men and all successful at their sport at one point or another. These were Olympic medal winners and national team leaders. The researchers started asking them about exertion pain. And they noticed that when the cyclists responded, when they thought about it, they said that on their good days, on the really good days, the day the cyclists won, turned in particularly impressive times, the days when athletic output was at its highest and most taxing, the cyclists experienced little pain. Days where they performed poorly hurt the most. So when they dawdled at the back of the packs, took their time, it hurt the worst. Which kind of doesn't make sense. In a sense, Cress and Stadier were suggesting that winners, on a good day, possess cognitive tools to get on the right side of exertion pain. During the races, the actual exertion pain never went away. I mean, they were still racing. What changed was the athlete's perception of it, and with it, his performance. Remember that alarm bell we were talking about earlier? The warning system we were talking about? It's a little bit like the science fiction movies where the spacecraft's warning system starts droning away and the captain says, turn it off so I can think. The sound goes away, but the yellow light keeps flashing. These cyclists were essentially doing the same thing. They were turning off the manifestation of their body's warning systems. Alarms were still going off, but they had muffled the alarm bell. This is mind over matter. This is Jedi stuff. And most of all, this is a skill, a craft, a tool that can be honed, sharpened, or employed to win a race or simply make a day in the mountains a little more fun. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. It's become a popular theory amongst the ultra runners, the triathletes, and the adventure racing, something they've anecdotally dubbed the Lance Armstrong effect. This is how Jared puts it. Your body just conditions itself to be less alarmed by pain and less discomfort and less distracted and, and disabled by the pain. And so that, you know, older athlete who's been through a lot of races just has this mental capacity to, you know, kind of box off the pain and, and move forward without actually physically experiencing as much pain. And the idea is that the more pain you've been exposed to over time, your, your body actually just conditions itself and numbs itself to it. And you actually experience less pain going forward. So, like, for example, if I, you know, just broke one of your fingers and then scratched your arm, you wouldn't feel the scratch at all. I'm just glad this is a phone interview. So maybe type 3 fun gets a little bit easier the more you do it. Maybe it starts to feel a little bit like type 2 fun, say. So now it's time to meet Jesse Huey, who's no stranger to the epic. He's climbed Half Dome and El Cap in a single day. He's ticked off the hard person ice climb test pieces in the Canadian Rockies. He's a qualified sufferer. For someone so accomplished, it's bound to get easier. Not so much. So our final question of the day, what would motivate someone to embark on type 3 fun? It's a big question. Why? Is there something inside the human soul that pushes us to our limits? Does the modern world lack the intensity of the old days? Maybe. But sometimes you do these things because you want to impress a girl.
Verity can't stop talking about it, man. Like she brings it up all the time. Like the story. She, she thinks it's that funny. Yeah. Yeah. I I like have actually tried to forget it. <laughs> it's seriously, it's like one of those days that that you just I don't know. You you're better off without in your life. I think you know. A couple of years ago, Jesse was living in Seattle. He worked for the family surveying business in Arlington, about an hour to the north, without traffic. During rush hour, it can be a lot worse. It's dark out at night. It's dark in the morning when you go, and uh, it's raining all the time. And I'm doing it every day, and I'm pretty like unhappy about the whole thing. Jesse's girlfriend at the time was a devout bike commuter who pedaled the four blocks from their apartment to her yoga studio, and she thought Jesse should be doing the same thing. She kind of got on her high horse and like got, gave me the whole high and mighty. I'm like, you should bike commute too. He kept hearing about it. Jesse knew this was not a good idea. It was not going to turn out well. But he wanted to impress his girlfriend. So one Sunday afternoon, he decided, what the heck, this doesn't sound like a good idea, but I'll try it anyway. He's a pretty fit guy. He's a smart guy. Sure, the metro system had its few flaws, but whatever. I remember specifically, like, not having a coffee that morning. I was thinking, like, God, all I want is a coffee. I'd always get a coffee on the way to work. It's gray out. He's got to catch a bus north. He's sitting at the bus stop, wishing he had his coffee. I see the Starbucks, right? And it's just, it's like, it's right there. It's, it's right across the street. And I'm, I can tell that the bus is going to be here any minute, right? So I'm just sitting there looking at the Starbucks. I'm like, oh, man. Can I, uh, can I make it? Tell him, like, is it worth chancing me going to get the, 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 the coffee right now, you know? Nope. It's probably not worth the risk, he decided. The bus would be there any moment, so he waits. And he waits some more while he stares at the Starbucks. Now he's late for work and the appointment. He makes a phone call. No bus, no coffee. Things aren't looking so good so far. Finally, after 40 minutes, the bus arrives. He piles on with the rest of the commuters to make his connection to the transit center. They rumble north. Jesse gets off and races for his connector and then remembers something. <laughs> As I'm walking away from the bus, I see the bus driving away with my bike on the front of the bus. <laughs> I run down the bus, right? And I smack the side of the bus and the bus driver stops. I'm like, you got my bike on the front of the bus. He's got a meeting at 10. They'd go down these side streets and pick up 10 people here and drop them off at the mall over there, and then they'd get back on the freeway. Jesse was going to have to cancel with his clients. From the bus stop, he rode the four miles to his office as fast as he could, and all he wanted the entire time was an Americano. This was definitely not fun.
last. He managed to cobble together a day's worth of work, but the skies had gone gray. He looked nervously out the window. It is black out there. And I remember seeing, and like I did look on online, I check out the, the weather report, and it's like, oh man, like it looks bad, right? It's like thunderstorms this afternoon, chance of rain, 100%. And at this point, I'm like hell-bent on doing the ride, you know, the, the bus, bike, commute, like by myself. This is like a solo mission now, right? And keep in mind, I still haven't had a coffee yet. His dad offered him a lift to the bus stop. Jesse refused. He didn't need the help. He could finish this alone. It is frigging dumping on me. Like the city of Miami, like when they get rain, like you know how it comes down in like those big fat drops? Like it rains like that like five times a year. And I've got like, I've got like, 20 minutes so I don't really care uh, to get to this bus stop and I'm just like whatever just like okay I'm gonna do this do this by myself like I'm not gonna ask for my dad give me a ride to the bus, bus stop he made it to the bus stop and waited 100 feet away there were other commuters standing underneath the eaves of a drugstore Jesse decided he'd do the same at like the exact minute it's like 4:45. the bus I see the bus coming and I ride I ride my bike like mad it's just dumping buckets, man. I mean, like, literally, it's flooding the streets at this point. And I, I walk up to the bus, and the bus doesn't open the door. Like, I'm like, oh, is this... And I'm, like, yelling through the door. I'm like, is this the bus stop for for the Linwood station? And they're like, no. He just shakes his head, no. I'm like, can you pick me up? And he's like, no. At this point, he didn't care where the bus was headed. <laughs> so, so I'm like, what... What? And the guy just takes off. No one's at the bus stop, right? Because it's pissing rain. And he just goes right through. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Because I I noticed like the next bus is like 6.45. Starting to get angry at my girlfriend. I'm like starting to get like angry at the fact that I agreed to do the bike bus commute anyway and so um, i look over and i see starbucks right suddenly his bad day wasn't going to be so bad after all the cars at the intersection left a little room for him to cross and i'm like oh thanks thanks they see i'm in the pouring rain so i ride my bike straight across the intersection and there's a gas station on the other side truck okay guns it straight to the turning lane while i'm going across the road i friggin hit this guy like head on straight into the hood okay and i go i do a full flip over over his car like i land and kind of like side by his passenger door and like i'm like Oh my God, that hurt. And I, I get up and people are rolling down their windows. And they're like, are you okay? Are you all right? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. The driver gets out from behind the wheel. People are looking at Jesse. He doesn't have a helmet on. He's walking around like he's a little dazed. And I'm thinking like, oh God, am I in trouble here? Like I wasn't in the crosswalk. I'm kind of a motor vehicle too because I'm a bike. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. If you're okay, I'm okay. I'm just going to go get my coffee. 
<laughs> the guy's like, okay, if you say so, like, you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, ah. I put my bike over my shoulder and I just walk through traffic. Like, I'm pissed and I'm bleeding everywhere. I've got like, I, I had blood coming out of my nose, I think, and I had blood all over my hands. I think I really like cut my hands up in the cement when I landed. I walk behind Starbucks and I look at my bike and I'm, and I see that the tire, I mean, the bike's worthless, right? Like, Take the bike up, and there's this field behind Starbucks, and I do like those. Uh, what was that? Like the the, sh the shot put throw. <laughs> I just do like two spins, and I throw my bike as far as I can into this field, and I'm just like, ah, I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs. So I kind of calm down, and I get into uh, a walk over to Starbucks. And uh, I don't realize what I look like, right? Like, I've been in the rain for probably 20 minutes. I'm bleeding everywhere. And people stop in the store. Like, nobody's doing anything. Like, I walk up and I'm like, I'd like, Ameri I'd like an Americano. Um, Sir, you're bleeding. I'm like, I would like an Americano. <laughs> and I, I go to pay. And I, I realize when I, like, hand her, like, a $5 bill, like, it's just covered in blood, like, and it's soaking wet, right? <laughs> and I'm like, and she's like, sir, you're, you're bleeding. I had no idea. I'm just like, I look terrible. So the coffee settled Jesse down. He cleaned himself up in the bathroom. The rain let up. He got on the right bus. He was headed home. This hadn't sounded like a good idea. It had been unsafe, nearly lethal, cold, wet, and miserable in the act. It had type 3 fun written all over it. So, because of that, it was going to be a good story. And I get on the bus this time, okay, and I sit down, and I am just thinking to myself, like, like this can't, this, like, nobody's had a worse day than me any, anywhere. Like, there, it was not possible. The bus stops. A man gets on and sits down across the aisle from Jesse. And I hear him talking, and he's got like a like a military issued duffel bag. I start talking to this guy, and he's like, "Man, you look like hell or something." And I'm like, "I've had a bad day, man." And he's like, "Def, I guarantee it's not worse than mine." And I'm like, "Like, try me, dude." <laughs> Jesse starts at the beginning. The late bus, the rainstorm, the bus leaving him, getting hit by a car, a destroyed bike. At the very least, well, Jesse would have the true joy of Type 3 fun, telling the story after the fact. He finished. He was proud. Top that, Mr. Bus Rider Man. So he tells me that he had been home for like five days from Iraq. And he got a phone call that he had to go back that night. And so he was on his way back to Iraq after being with his family. The soldier's day had definitely been worse. Type 3 fun is, after all, still fun. The bus lumbered to Linwood like a sullen teen. And then on to Everett. Limping and tired without a bike, Jesse called his girlfriend to ask for a ride straight to the bar. We're going to the Red Door. Right now. You can come if you want. 
but you might not want to come. <laughs> Something like that. His defeat was complete. There was nothing left to do but pull up a bar stool and share a story. There, I, I absolutely wouldn't have done that if it weren't for this woman. Like, no way. I mean, did you get any sympathy when you got home? I think she felt like I was mad at her, and I'm sure I was. You know, like I was pissed, dude. It took me a, it took me a while to like realize that I actually signed up for that. <laughs> you know. The thing about type 3 fun and about all these examples is that the pain is momentary. It has a finite end. Jared's race might have seemed never-ending, but it was actually 660 miles long. The cyclists just had to endure minutes of cardiovascular torture if they wanted to break away from the pack. Jesse only had to survive one day on the mean streets of Seattle. So what replaces that pain? I mean, because it's finite and all. What does that pain turn into? It morphs into joy. You hear it in Jared's stories of all night's runs and minutes of sleep at the trailhead. The researchers Cress and Stadier noted the excitement in the elite cyclists' voices when they talked about the painful moments of their career. And you can hear it in Jesse's laughter. That's because type 3 fun. It may sound like a bad idea and may be horrible in the process, but when all is said and done, you will have something worth remembering. You have a story. Jesse now lives in Boulder, where, miraculously enough, he still rides his bike around town, the same bike he threw over the fence. He went and got it. Jared, well, he's gained back most of the 15 pounds he lost during the Primal Quest Badlands, and is thinking about his next race. Thanks to those guys for participating. All right, people, I need your help. For those of you who've been with us for a few years now, you'll remember we've done a New Year's episode a few years in a row. They're popular. People like them. It's called the Year of Big Ideas. So we need to know what your goals and hopes are for 2010. Send in your idea, and you might end up on the show. Our email's dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. Music today by Andrew Jackson Jihad, Apples and Stereo, EGADS, General Electrics, and These United States. You can download the songs and find the links to the artists on the site, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the Dirtbag Diaries comes from the good people of Patagonia, who build products that are perfect for type 1 fun, but won't let you down on type 3 days. Beck and I were actually just down in Ventura, checking out their testing facility where they've got all these machines where they torture, basically stretch, rip, tear, freeze, and soak all their clothes to make sure that when they go and get stuff, well, their clothes are ready for it. Check them out online at patagonia.com. Additional support for the diaries comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to find your folly. Visit them at newbelgium.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Wow.